parables are supposed to have sort of one meaning. They, you're not supposed to sort of farm them for a lot of different meanings. And so uh, I kind of wrote what I thought was the meaning of this parable. That is, I think this parable means or teaches us that the kingdom of God flourishes and grows as we actively recognize and engage the faithful presence of God. So what I'll try to do is stretch that statement out for you today, that we, the kingdom of God grows as we learn to recognize the cues about the presence of God and to engage those actively in the context in which we are in life. So a big point here, uh, go back, is the idea of uh, understands, hears the word and understands the word. And so I want to think a little bit about what it means to understand uh, the word that is sown, to understand or not. So what the word understanding does not mean is uh, large feet. That was my dad's joke. He always said he had a large understanding because he had a large feet. Yeah, sorry, bad joke of the day. Bad joke of the day. Uh, so the classical idea about understanding is uh, taking in information that information is given to us, particularly orally, a lecture perhaps. I do a lot of that. Get a certain amount of information out and take in that information and uh, relate it to maybe other things we knew, know. It's somewhat abstract information, at least in the sense that it's in a, a verbal code, things that we say. So in this case, sewing would be teaching or preaching, uh, or maybe Christian books, things we read. And then the sort of test would be whether or not we can reproduce that, you know, answer correctly the true and false questions, write the essay correctly. Uh, that's sort of the outcome of this kind of understanding. Can you, in fact, reproduce the information that you are given. That's one way to understand uh, information. So somebody asks you later on this week, what did Warren teach about Sunday? It's really this kind of understanding that is, can I somehow paraphrase what it was that Warren said when he was preaching Sunday and whatever he was on about. And you have some recollection of that. That's one way that we think about and understand understanding. Another is this idea of understanding as sort of an intuitive comprehension of a mystery. That, that, that what is important to know is some kind of a mystery there and that we want to somehow intuitively or affectively or get, some, get our mind around or connected to that mystery. The uh, thought or the idea that came to my mind is the use of incense in uh, Catholic or, or High Church Episcopal services, that the incense, the smoke, is supposed to symbolize a mysterious presence of God that is not propositional in the sense you can necessarily talk about it, 
but it's God's presence in some mystery, some mystical way. And so in this case, understanding is somewhat like enlightenment. We, we kind of dwell in the mystery in some way until we kind of feel like we are enlightened about what this means. So maybe sit there and contemplate and meditate for a while in order to be enlightened. So the test here is more like uh, some affective, subjective feeling of being enlightened or knowing or understanding whatever it is that is encompassed in the mystery. And so sowing here would be, excuse this term, something like blowing smoke. That is, it is um, suggesting or making present somehow the nature of the mystery. There is some mystery uh, that we need to pay attention to. Uh, I don't want to necessarily play down either of those. Uh, both ways of understanding uh, are, I think, pointers to ways that we can come to understanding, but they're not understanding itself. I want to make an argument that understanding is of a different sort than just comprehending in some um, sense that we might uh, comprehend a lecture or being somehow enlightened or a, a feeling of experience about a mystery. Uh, these are pointers, but they're not the th thing itself, I don't think. Understanding, I think, means knowing how to interact with. I know, I understand that because I know what to do in relationship to it. It's not that I know it somehow abstractly, and it's not that I am somehow distantly enlightened about it. I know how to actively participate or interact with whatever it is. Uh, so, how many of you kids know how to ride a bike? Can you guys ride a bike? Cool. All right. Everybody else know how to ride a bike? Some people do, some don't. Uh, how many of you guys know how to ride a skateboard? Ah, uh, got some skateboard riders. How many of you know how to surf? Ah, uh, Zeke knows how to surf. Jeff knows how to surf. Zeke, I want you to tell me, I'm not a surfer. I have never surfed in my life, never been on a surfboard. Tell me what I need to know to be able to surf. Yeah, what would, I need to, what would you need to tell me for me to grab my surfboard and jump in the water and be able to surf? You're stumped. I don't think we can tell each other. It's like telling a person how to ride a bicycle. You can't tell a person how to ride a bicycle. They have to get the bicycle, get on the bicycle, and start interacting with it in some way to understand. So, you know, you couldn't tell me. So, I, I got a better idea, Zeke. I will go down to the beach, and I will sit on the beach, and I will meditate on surfers. They will be out there surfing, and I will watch what they do, and I will meditate on surfing, and then I'll grab my surfboard, and I'll jump in the water, and I will be able to surf, right? Nah, no, not really. What do I need to do to learn how to surf? 
I need to grab the board, get in the water, and do something. I need to act in some way. It's not passive in either sense of receiving abstract information, and it's not passive in the sense of kind of knowing that there is a mystery and kind of waiting for enlightenment. It is. Pardon? Yeah, I would. I would definitely need a guide, yes. I, I would actually go for Jeff right now, Zeke. Uh, but yes, are you, but, but the point is, for me to get it, I got to get the board, and I got to get in the water, and I got to try it out over and over again in order to interact with it. And then when you say Warren knows how to surf, Warren understands surfing, it means that Warren knows what to do when there's an opportunity to grab a board and get in the water, right? So I think that is the kind of understanding that is being talked about in this parable. Um, let's see, where am I going? So uh, I think the understanding that is the target of this parable comes through action, not passive registration, taking it in, or somehow divine enlightenment in some sort of passive receiving of. To understand, we have to participate, we have to act in a particular way with respect to particular circumstances uh, in order to understand them. The gospel and the, the parable is about sowing the word, sowing the gospel. The gospel is only understood and its implications as we interact with the gospel that is sown. Can't be, this is not passive, just take it in and kind of understand it some way. So in the parable of the sower and the seed, the fertility of the soil represents a willingness to actively receive and interact with the word that is sown. All right? The goodness of the soil represents interaction necessary to understand. So I, I uh, John was talking about looking up some stuff on Wikipedia. So I got on Wikipedia and I looked up some stuff. So what I looked up was what, what is good soil? What is the description of fertile good soil? So fertile good soil, it, Wikipedia says, is sufficient soil depth for adequate root growth and water retention, so there's some depth. Good internal drainage. Soil pH in the range of 5.5 to 7.0. Adequate concentrations of plant nutrients. Sufficient organic matter. And the presence of microorganisms that support growth. Something like 30 different microorganisms. So good fertile soil is just not sort of a bundle of the right molecules sitting there for the seed. There is, in fact, organic, biological interaction of the soil with the seed in order for anything to happen. It just doesn't sit there passively and receives the seed for anything to grow. There has to be uh, activity there for uh, the seed to be um, grow as a seed. So, in our parable here, Jesus tells this parable about a sower that sows good seeds, 
that is or is not understood. That is, the seed interacts with the soil in such a way as it germinates robust plants in large quantities. The sower in this parable, I think, is not us. I think it's God who is the sower. God is the sower of the seed. And the seed, then, is not things like scripture verses, theological statements, even biblical stories, church liturgies or activities, church communal life, experiences of mystery, enlightenment, or the like. All of these play a part, but they are not, I think, the seed itself. They help us understand or kind of see the seed, but I don't think these are the seed themselves. So I'm going to take a cue from a theologian named David Fitch. I heard him talk at a conference, and then kind of liked what he was saying, so I looked at his book. And he talks about the faithful presence of God in all situations. So I got to thinking about this parable as the seed being the faithful presence of God. What God sows into our lives is his faithful presence. That's the seed. That's the good seed. And our task is just to recognize, be aware of, and interact with the seed that is the faithful presence of God in whatever situation we're in, particularly in interpersonal social situations where we're with other people. The faithful presence of God is there, and our, that's the seed, and as good soil, our task is just to recognize that it's there and interact with that soil in some way. One of the reasons I liked this uh, idea was that it was simple. And it's not complicated. Just have to kind of get your mind around it, get your eyes to see and your ears to hear the fact that God is present in these situations we're in, and then it, you know, it's, there's not some complicated thing. In fact, I read, I got David Fitch's book, and the first part was, I heard him talk at a conference, then I read the first part of the book, and then all of a sudden I realized all of the chapters were about disciplines, the discipline of Eucharist, the discipline of reconciliation, the discipline of proclamation. And I, my reaction was, this is making something that's flat out, straight out, simple, a lot more complicated than it needs to be to talk about these as sort of disciplines we have to engage in. It's, in, in that sense, it's not that, it's very deep and very important, but it's not that complicated. God is present, and our task is to just open up to and receive and recognize the presence of God in all these situations that we're in, wherever they are, whatever they are. Uh, my friend Dennis, who was with me on that conference, and we'd been talking about Fitch in his book, say, I don't think they're disciplines. He says, I think they're opportunities. The opportunity of Eucharist. The opportunity of reconciliation. Opportunities and cues to be able to recognize and see and interact with the presence of God in all these situations in our life. To just recognize that there are opportunities in all sorts of ways. Uh, this friend of mine, Dennis, uh, we carry on this 
somewhat unusual long telephone, he's in Seattle, long conversation over telephone about all kinds of stuff and read similar books. And so he calls me this morning and says, I've been reading Jay Burkrow. Jay Burkrow, uh, Wendell Berry is among my favorite author. He says, I gotta read you this paragraph. So he reads me this paragraph and it's very much related to this idea of the s simplicity, in a sense, of the nature of the gospel in our lives. So Jaber Crow is talking at this point, as Wendell Berry writes, and he said, I am maybe the ultimate Protestant, the man at the end of the Protestant road. For as I have read the gospels over the years, uh, the belief has grown in me that Christ did not come to organize religion, but came instead to found an unorganized one. He seems to have come to carry religion out of the temple, into the fields and sheep pastures, into the roadsides and the banks of rivers, into the houses of sinners and publicans, into the town and the wilderness, towards the membership of all that is here. Well, you can read and see what you think. But I, somehow when Dennis read that to me on the phone this morning, I was thinking, yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking about, that, that what the seed is in our life is the presence of God, and what the fertility of the soil is, is our openness to recognize and understand God's presence in all these various situations. So the soil then, uh, and so if we consider the seed to be God's presence, this is, uh, the parable talks about the seed as the seed of the word, and this would be the word in the sense of the introductions to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So God sends the word, seeds the word with his presence in the situations we are in in life. So the question of the parable, will the seeds of God's present be received actively? Uh, is the faithful presence of God recognized and engaged in the events of our lives? Do we have eyes to see and ears to hear the presence of God in all these situations that we encounter? So in Jesus' explanation uh, of the parable, uh, he explains it in terms of the not-so-fertile soil. And so let's just kind of look at that for a moment. Talks about hard, compacted soil along, particularly along the trail or along the pathway that this had been beaten down and very hard because people walk on it. And I was thinking about what this suggests. Maybe it suggests persons who either are sort of adverse or aloof to the, to the uh, scriptures, maybe had some kind of a religious background that was rejected, abusive, whatever else, and it just kind of walled off the whole question. This is just not something that I'm gonna deal with. And I, I was th another possibility is just sort of extreme religious rigidity, that this is what it means to be religious and there's just nothing else we're gonna deal with. And I thought about this one, I was thinking, that's, I don't, I don't really resonate with that one. And then I thought, well, maybe I don't resonate with them because I really don't have ears to hear and eyes to see 
how hard and walled off my life really is. But I don't think, I don't know. Then there's the sort of rocky, thin soil. Whoops, what happened? Did I turn something? Oh, aha, I turned off the screen, hit the one button. So this is soil that is, has some thin, fertile soil, but a whole lot of rocks and very thin. And that part I really thought was a kind of Christian life where some parts of our, my life are open to participation of God, but other parts are walled off. There are parts of my life to which I am just not going to go there. Religion is and churches, these things, and then there are these things that just don't apply. Things like maybe my recreation or my job, my money, way I treat my employees, my sex life, certain groups of friends. Some things are just walled off. These are not going to be a part of or open to understanding the faithful presence of God in those areas. They're just kind of walled off. And of course, that's often areas where the problems crop up. So the parable suggests that we, we uh, uh, have issues, problems, distresses in those areas and that there's no uh, depth, there's no soil there, there's nothing there to um, maintain and enrich a Christian life in those areas. Then the one we probably all relate to easily is the idea of thorny soil. And, uh, you know, Luke, in the, the, his version of his parables, says uh, that the seeds are choked up by the cares and pleasures of life. There's just so much stuff going on, too much good stuff. And in the midst of all this good stuff, there's not mental space, whatever, to recognize and interact with the faithful presence of God in those areas. It's not that they're walled off, they're just crowded. There's just too much going on in all of these areas. Uh, and so we kind of lose track of the presence of God. It's not that we should, in many cases, it's not that we should not be doing this stuff. It's hard to figure out in all of this stuff that crowds into our life, stuff that we should just not do. There probably is stuff we should not do. But I was thinking that, that we need to keep our mindfulness weeded. Keep our mindfulness weeded. That is what we are mindful of in all of these contexts of our busyness in our life is the faithful presence of God and less getting totally absorbed in all of the things that tend to grab our attention and our effort. That's one of those kind of things that's easy to say, Warren, but doing that in you know, my life and all the pressure in my life, and I totally understand that. And then lastly is the, the good soil soil that is open to recognizing and interacting with God's presence, uh, actively making place for the living presence of God, having eyes to see and ears to hear, sort of organically 
interact with God's presence in the situations of our life. So the last thing I was thinking about in this, what I just went through is our normal interpretation of scriptural passages. That is, we tend to interpret them individualistically. This is the, all of these kinds of soils are about individual people. What if we took this passage and thought about it with respect to the church or mountainside? In what sense might we think about mountainside being hard soil, stony soil, thorny soil, or fertile? So I'm, I'm going to open that up. I, I just kind of speculate a little in my own mind, but what, what would you think if you were to take this, this passage and instead of interpreting it as characteristics of individual persons, you begin to think about characteristics of church bodies, life together. Any of that grab you? What you might think of as stony, what you might think of as... Thorny, windy. Yeah. I remember one time Josh told the story about uh, meeting a woman who was not religious, and and he told her that he was he said that he was pastor, and she said, "How do you know your church is the answer?" And he said, "Trusting outside is not the answer." Yeah. Yeah, so one way we stay fertile is to not get so focused on what we are as an organized church and keep focused on what it is that God's presence is wanting to do here, there, and wherever we are. Any other thoughts? Thorniness? Yeah. So I, in that line, I kind of thought about the thorniness is, is getting too much good stuff going that we as the church become overly busy with respect to, I don't know, it's, it's, that, that it's not that all the, we do a lot of really good stuff, but keeping that stuff mindful of where it is that we're going this, what is the important outcome, what are we trying to, to cultivate, and how do we recognize God's presence in these things, rather than it's easy to get 
the, the activity or the program sort of run for the sake of the program itself rather than for the sake of what it is God wants to be a part of in that stuff. Anything else? We've got a few minutes before our kids come back, right? Are they all back? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We can push the metaphor for the but I like to because, uh, so one of the things that is in good soils, not only microorganisms, but, in, but just a lot of, of organic matter, just a lot of different stuff in good soil. So you, you, you know, yeah. So you need a lot of diversity of interactions with the soil, with the seed in order for the, uh, the uh, bounty of the presence of God. Anything else? Other thoughts? Yeah. God's presence is still there. Yeah. Yes. So I, yeah, I, I think uh, to some degree these are not, maybe not well understood as, as uh, discrete categories, but as the ways different parts of our lives or way that we are over time or we as a church may be in various contexts a little bit weedy and thorny and some other contexts more... Uh, Open airs all the kids. So what I'm trying to think of is, is how we come to understand as a corporate body and interact with God's presence among us as a body. There is a, I just grabbed a bunch of slides of kinds of things we do in the world that can be seeded with God's presence and uh, certainly related to our call as a church to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. So Eucharist, I'm thinking, is a kind of a symbol of an active recognition of God's faithful presence. 
we actively participate in the Eucharist as a symbol of interacting with God's presence. God's presence is not in the elements. God's presence is among us and in us and between us as we are participating in the Eucharist. And the question is, do we hear and see the presence of God? And to what degree does Eucharist help us open our eyes and open our ears to understanding God's presence uh, among us? Eucharist also kind of softens soil and weeds out some things and help us focus on God's presence, at least for the moment. So Jesus, so actually Paul says in Corinthians, whenever we eat the bread and drink this cup, in my paraphrase, we proclaim, we proclaim the Lord's faithful presence until he comes as we eat and take of the bread together. So, on the night that he was, was uh, with his disciples in the upper room, he prayed and then he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Just take this. Okay. And he also took the cup. And he says, This is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of my faithful presence. <laughs> 